place. And there's nobody that wants the new guy to, to connect to this program and get sober more uh, than Ryan. I, I, you know, I've had the, the fortunate experiences of uh, spending time with him and his family and seeing how he acts around his family and how he interacts with other people. And, um, he does his best to apply these principles in his life from all that I see. Um, and really excited to hear his story tonight. With no further ado, let's hear the story of the Florida man. Good evening, everyone. My name is Brian Sussman. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Brian. Uh, I've been told that at the beginning of these meetings, it's an important factor to get out of the way. First one is my sobriety date, July the 13th, 2019. Is that my sponsor? His name is Chris. He has a sponsor named Billy, and he has a sponsor named Keith. And he keeps going on up the chain. And uh, I, I know all of them <laughs> well. Uh, I have a home group. My home group currently is the Young People's Group, but I also claim the Awakenings Group now. Is that uh, it's a, a phase of recovery I'm going through. I'm not sure which direction I'm going through to relate. Um, and uh, I have service commitment at my home group. My service commitment at the Young People's Group is sweeping the floors. At first, when they gave me that service commitment, I felt insulted by it, like I needed something a little more prestigious than that. But that's exactly why it is that I have that one. It's so that I, re so that I remember exactly who I am, is that I'm not some prestigious person. I'm just an alcoholic, and I need to be sweeping the floors and, and making the coffee. Is that uh, a couple of things also, is that my sponsor told me to read, I thought I would read a little bit with you guys. Is that, uh, where it talks about in the big book, and anytime in the big book that it says something multiple times, it means that it's important. And what I found is in the big book, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, about eight times in the big book where it refers to what it is that we talk about in these meetings and what it is that I'm supposed to be sharing with you guys. I'm just going to read a little bit to you, read a couple excerpts to you guys. One of them is on page 20. It says, it's the purpose of this book, which the book being the program also, to answer such questions. We should, shall tell you what we have done before going into detailed discussions. Okay, we'll tell you what we have done. Is that page 29. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. And I'll read one more for you guys on page 55. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enable you to think honestly, encourage you to search diligently within yourself, then if you wish, you could join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot, cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. In this book, you will read the experience of a man, and it continues on. Is that, I think I got that out of the way. One of the things that I've learned in AA is that if you can't reconcile something you hear in AA from the book, then it might just very well be an opinion. Is that uh, I've, I've been guilty of expressing opinions when I first got here, and then, but now what I've come to know is that if, you, if I study this book, not just read it casually, not just talk about reading it, not just talk about you know, talk, you know chewing the fat at meetings, but actually read the book, and study it as if I, as if it was like a course in college. Now I don't know, a whole, didn't know a whole lot about studying when I was in college, but now I'm starting to understand about what it means to study. That I'll actually have this spiritual awakening they talk about. So a little bit about about me. I'm, I'm originally from Jacksonville, Florida, 
is that uh, Jacksonville is that little city in Florida that's South Georgia, just tucked down there in Florida, so nobody would know about it. Is that uh, I, I had a funny conversation one time with a friend here, and I said, I it said something about being from Florida, and I said, yeah, well, people look up to people from Florida, right? Is that it's prestigious, sunny, sandy beaches, women in bikinis, and it's the the lifestyles of the rich and famous. That's where Donald Trump has his place, and you know all the the wealthy people of the world live down in Palm Beach or whatever it is. I said that's what people think of when you say Florida, and they said no, right? Have you ever heard of Florida man? <laughs> Florida man? They said, yeah, Florida man. You know, what you hear about in the, it's, it's on all the headlines. Florida man wrestles with alligators. <laughs> Florida man kills, you know, so many people in a, in a school. Florida man does, and that's, that's the reputation of Florida man. I went like, whoa. So you mean the impression that people have of me being from Florida isn't what I think it was. Because once again, I think I'm really prestigious. I think I'm something. And that's. I don't know why, I, well, I know why I have, and I'll, and I'll get more to that. Is that. I grew up in a middle-class family. I grew up in, in you know, an active member of my shul. A shul is a synagogue. It's the same thing as what you, what you would go to in church. Is that I was raised Jewish, so I was raised to read and write Hebrew. So it was a very intense religious experience that I was involved in where I learned another language, where I was immersed in this, and heavily involved. All my friends were Jewish, all you know, all of our extended family, and the people that are around us were Jewish, and they all had this common goal of building a relationship with God. You see, but I don't know why I didn't, I didn't understand that. I don't know why it didn't sink in for me. Is that um, I did everything my parents wanted me to do for, for the sake of pleasing them, and for the sake of, of getting what I wanted. Is that if I did what they wanted me to do, then I would get the things that I wanted out of it. I would get either praise or I was always seeking seeking my validation from telling me that I'm good is that uh, and so that was really the, the whole goal of religion for me it was all about what I'm going to get out of it is that um, I uh, participated in youth group and all sorts of different activities in that where I rose to like these higher leadership roles um, I, I don't know exactly why well I couldn't tell you exactly what it was that that made me be able to manipulate my way into like president roles of youth groups and different organizations that I was in, but I was always able to get there with some form of bullshit. It really was it really wasn't like a whole lot of hard work that I put into achieving these kind of things. It just was kind of granted to me. Um, someone told me the other day. They said I, I related was that I was older than all the kids in my grade. So being the older kid in the grade, sometimes you actually have that opportunity because you're the older kid. And the younger kids that have the, the earlier birthdays or whatever, that they kind of look up to an older kid just naturally. It's kind of like how we look at people, you know, the guy with the gray hair is the, the guy in the room that maybe has the most experience. And it's starting to get a little dangerous here because in case you couldn't tell, I'm starting to grow a little gray and people think I know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> is that it can be dangerous. And what I have to say in Alcoholics Anonymous could be life or death, too. Anyway, so um, going on, I kind of went with the same pattern. Is that, but as I started to hit like that middle school era, that era where I started to, you know, started to notice the women, started to notice the little girls in the class, and started to have that, that obsessive process on trying to, try, you know, what I know about it now, I didn't know then, was that, that was another means of me reaching outside of myself to grab something fill that hole that I had within me is that I'd fill it with you know with 
friends with pre the prestige that I desired from my friends, but I loved it, loved it when the little girls would pay attention to me. So I found ways to be the joker, be the funny guy, is that a lot of times I was the class clown or I'd be the serious guy, depending on what everybody wanted me to be, is that I became quite the chameleon. Fortunately, what it did do is it led to a wonderful job in sales that, that worked out well for me for many years. That comes later. But I, I was this chameleon all along. I, mean, I was pleasing my parents. I was pleasing you guys. I mean, like, sometimes it was just trying to please the other dudes in the class. I wanted so bad to be approved, to just have that stamp of approval by you that I was willing to go to any length to do that. And if it meant stepping on someone else's toes, if it meant, you know, building a friendship with somebody only to, to share their secrets with somebody else, to try to buy some, some currency of, uh, of how people looked at me, is I would do it. It didn't matter. Is that I never thought about anything I was doing to anybody else, even as a child. This is before alcohol ever came into play. Is that I was an alcoholic and an asshole way before I started drinking. Drinking came along around the same time women came along. Is that somewhere right around that middle school era when I started to notice little girls, I also started to, we figured out that one of my friends, his parents had their own little problem that they hid in a filing cabinet in a closet. It's a non-conference approved outside issue that we got into. Is it, and that's when that came into play in my life. And it became a prevalent part of my life. That's around the same time that I started drinking alcohol. I remember the first time, the first drink I ever had. I don't recall any of the other outside issues the first time I did them, but I remember the first time I got drunk. It was at Anastasia Island State Park in Jackson, just outside of Jacksonville, St. Augustine, Florida. And we're at this park, and I don't remember anything other than getting drunk, waking up the next day feeling like crap and wanting to do it again. And after that, all I ever wanted to do is that I had a certain set of friends. I had Billy that his mom was, you know, his mom was a single mom that let him do anything he wanted. Okay, I stay at Billy's house a lot. I had Adam whose parents had the outside issues in their closet. I stayed at his house a lot. I made my friendships based on how I could drink. My friendships, I mean like, all the other friendships that I had from playing soccer, I mean, I played every sport known to man as a kid. Played baseball, soccer, swimming. Um, I mean, not every sport known to man, but you get the point. Is that I played a series of sports. All those other things went by the wayside only for the, pe only for the friendships that I could have where I could get drunk and where I could chase after women. Is that there are some phases of my, in, my, in my story where I had been able to put aside the drink for a period of time. And most of the time, it was because I was going after something else to fill that hole. Is that what I know, and, and I'll, I'll tell you guys this, is that not only am I an act, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, there are other fellowships out there that have been a, a part of my story as well. Is that lust and sex have been a major, major issue, not only in those, those years, but as I started to get sober, they became even more prevalent get to that. So I went to college at, at the Harvard of the South, the Florida State University. I, uh, I chose it for its academic prowess, and uh, I chose it because in Playboy magazine in 1995 or 1996, that the Publix on, on Ocala Street was rated the number one pickup spot in the country. The Publix off campus. 
It was also rated the number one party school in the country that year, which means that they had more drug and alcohol arrests than anywhere else, basically. That's how they judged that. Is that. So I chose Florida State, and I went there, and I went there with the purpose of, the same purpose that I had, of making friends when I was younger. I went there to, to it was like, a, my, my vision of what college was gonna be like was that it was gonna be like an animal house type of environment. It was gonna be Ryan's ability to go and get drunk and get messed up every day. And don't, as far as studies, I wasn't even really sure what I was gonna do with my life. Is that uh, I managed to get myself removed from Florida State, slightly involuntarily. Is that uh, I, uh, in, in, a, uh, in a drunken, a drunken event in a, a college dormitory, we uh, pulled out a, a fire hose and soaked down the hallway. Have y'all ever heard of a tide slide? It's where you take your tide discharge and rope down the hallway, and you get the ho water hose and you, you, you hose it down, and you take your sheets off your bed, you gotta get the fitted sheets, and you put your feet, your hands in the ends of it, run down the hallway, and you go sliding down the hallway. If you're good and drunk, it doesn't hurt when you hit the end of the hallway. But if you're not drunk, then they, there could be some injuries there. Is that uh, everyone always woke up with some sort of broken fingers or something like that the next day? Wasn't sure what Eventually, here, guys, I'm going to get to some sobriety stuff, but let me, let me just go for now. Is that uh, these events? These are all drunken behavior events, like stuff like that. What I've come to understand about myself here is that my my drunken behavior is not what I mean. It, it may have been what led to some of the consequences. But my, uh, my alcoholism, the selfishness and the self-centeredness that comes with it, that I don't give a crap about anybody else, that I don't care about relationships, I don't care about family, that that's what ultimately led me to a place where I was all by myself, all alone, and had nowhere to go but, but to here. So when I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, well, let me back up in a second, is that I went to, uh, after college, I had a series of jobs where I would build them up, I'd make really, really good money. And I mean like way more money than my friends were making. My friends would come out of college making, you know, average incomes. I started with an average income and very quickly went into a highly above average income. And what that highly above average income did for me was, it just allowed me a lot more opportunity to screw things up real tightly, is that, I had, I had no limitations as far as a budget concern of what I could get into and how I could get into it. And so it just allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do. And the, bad, the other bad thing about being above average income, and when you're a guy like me, that you judge everybody based on their income, everybody, is that if you made more money than me, I was jealous of you. If you made less money than me, then I looked down upon you because I'm better than you. Is that that was my, my, uh, that was my judgment factor. That was, that was the way I judged people, the way I judged the world. So coming out and immediately going into these high income jobs is that, but the bad thing is I couldn't keep them very long because ultimately something would happen. I'd either start some trouble in the office, I'd misbehave in some fashion, whether it was misbehaving by actually getting drunk on the job, or whether it was misbehaving with the women in the office. Because, once again, lust and sex and women are just as much my drug as alcohol or the other things are. Um, 
I watched the progression of my illness in a lot of different ways. I watched the progression of my illness and how much I drank and how much I could drink. I watched the progression of my illness on, on what sort of substances I would put in my body. Is that there were things that I swore I'd never do that I just kept going on and doing. And I watched the progression of my illness through my lust and sex relationships where I went from dating you know, women that might be someone you would think of marrying to not, that, that's not fun enough or wild enough to go into the wilder women who are in the, in the drug scene a little bit. No, 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 that wasn't wild enough. And gradually graduating over and over again until I got to some places where I, a buddy of mine said that a nice way to put this is instead of talking about, about it directly, might be to call it hoteling. <laughs> it's a hobby, had a hobby of hoteling, and that this obsessive thought process had become so prevalent in my life that I found myself clubbing and hoteling. Is that I'd spend my nights at the at the clubs that are well, I, I didn't go to the clubs here in Columbia. I didn't want anybody in Columbia to see me there, so I traveled with work. So I spent a lot of time in Greenville and Charleston. So I know the clubs in the out of town places. Is it, so I, I spent a lot of time in those places, and in those places I could, I could play the part that I wanted to play my whole life. I could play the big shot. I mean, I was coming in from work, I was wearing these, you know, wearing $1,000 suits and walking into some of the most sordid places on earth, and of course, everybody pays you attention when you do that, because everybody in those places is there for one reason, they're there to make money. Is it, but I was there to play the big shot. And the, the ladies of these, uh, of these type of establishments are professionals at catering to big shots like me. And so I made a, I made a living of this. I'd go to work during the day, I'd skip out of there as soon as I could, I'd may, maybe take a little nap in my hotel or whatever, and then boom, off I am, I'm in, in the club. And meanwhile, I'm in this high income job, right? I'm making extremely high amounts of money and broke as hell all the time never have a dollar to my name because I'm blowing every bit of it, trying to play the big shot, trying to have some sort of, it was an ego push. As ridiculous as that sounds, or maybe it doesn't sound ridiculous to some people in here, is that being able to go in there and be in that fantasy world, and, allow, and I allowed myself to, that, that was my life. As they looked up to me, they, they talked nice to me. They told me how great I was, and I just kept showing out the money left and right. And I had some pride points. I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't dance with the women in the back. I just keep them. I just pay them to be around my table all the time. That's how crazy this is. Is that, and that that was my life. Is it? And you know, once I got to that stage, it had to progress further from there, right? So I took a hostage. I took a hostage from a strip club. I found a, a, a woman in the strip club that just was looking for, I don't, I don't know what she was looking for, looking for someone to take care of her, maybe even just looking for somebody to love her, I don't know. Well, I know a little bit about her, is it? But we, uh, we partied hard, we had a lot of fun, and we wound up having a little girl together. Is it? This was not my plan. My plan was to have that fantasy life when I was out of town, and when I was here in town, to have a normal life. So it says in the big book, it talks about how the alcoholic lives a double life. He wants everyone to believe that he's this nice pillar of society and this nice guy and this good person. But deep down, he knows who he really is. Well, I knew who I really was. 
I knew that I was two-faced. I just was doing a, I was doing a decent job for a while of playing this part here in Columbia, South Carolina, and being the party man up in Greenville and in Charleston and Fort Mill and other areas of the, city, of the state. I always wonder when people say to me, they say, man, I recognize you from somewhere. I'm like, I'm not telling. I said, I hope, I hope not, because if you've been where I've been, then if you've been where I've been, you belong here too, probably. Is that, uh, but so this lady and I, uh, now meanwhile in Columbia, so going back to my lust issues, I had a girlfriend in Columbia, <clears throat> nice girl, the kind of girl that, you, that, that I wanted to marry, only she was never good enough. So I thought I could live this double life. And so I'm living the double life, and I find that we, I wind up with a pregnant girlfriend in Greenville, which is not the one. At, at the time, I said, well, gosh, if I could just done it the other way. But that's just not how God has this thing stored for her. I think in a, in a lot of ways, that was God looking after her and sending me down this path. So we, uh, we, have a 12, we have a little girl together. She moves to Columbia, and I'm, uh, my, my addiction really I mean, just, just went... If it could have, if it, it was already bad and it got worse, is that I got into other deep, uh, other harder outside issues, and the abuse in the in our in our home. I don't remember a lot of what happened when she was living when she was living here, but it, it wasn't long. It was while, through her pregnancy, and she was gone after about six months. Now, I usually tell that story in a lot of different ways. I tell that story, oh well, she left. That's how I like to tell that. I like to tell the story where it makes me look good, but the reality is neither one of us prepared to be parents. In that situation, um, I found myself, I found deep down somewhere the ability to get sober for a period of time. Is that when she left, um, that was one of the lowest points of my life, at least at the time, because I'd been drinking and drugging hard for that, that six months that we were living together, it's the only way that I could stand to go home was to be out. Um, when she left, I, I, what's funny is, is it was so terrifyingly bad that I felt the need to drug about it, but when she left, I'm thinking about killing myself over it. So when she's here, I'm, I'm saying, God, I wish she'd leave. And when she leaves, I'm thinking, holy shit, my life's over. I can't live without her. And so this is like this crazy... Uh, it's, I, I don't even, I still don't even fully understand it. I just know that the insanity that had taken over in my life was so whacked out that I, I lost sense of reality entirely. And so, uh, but my family kind of came into the mix. My sister came down here to visit with me on a regular basis. Um, we had a custody dispute over my daughter, and during the custody dispute period, I got sober. I started to clean up my life. I went to the gym like it was like it was my religion. I started going to the gym two days, two times a day, just trying to keep keep some semblance of sanity, trying to get all that anger and frustration out. Um, I was in the best shape of my life, and really starting to heal in some ways, but still, still a little bit, you know, still crazy. Still couldn't quite put it all together. Was still rubbing people wrong at work and all sorts of things. So we had this custody dispute. I go and I. I uh, was awarded custody of my daughter. Um, I can't get into too many details about that, but um, so in, in that period of time, so for a short period of time after they awarded me custody, now I'm an alcoholic, 
drug addict, sex addict, it, you know, I, I, I probably qualify for about every 12-step program in this country, is that uh, they award me custody. So the good news is, is God did grant me some grace and give me a reprieve from my alcohol and drug addiction for a period of time. But you would think that, like, the love of a child, if you have children, you know what I'm talking about. I love my little girl more than life, okay? That I would run in front of a train for her life. There's no doubt about it that there's nothing. But, but what's wild is even that didn't stop me from going back. Didn't stop me from the, the, the little thought in my mind said, you know, Ryan, you can smoke a little weed. You can have a couple of drinks. You can go, when, when Sadie goes to her mom's on that whatever end of the weekend or whatever it was, you can have a drink and just enjoy yourself. You're, you deserve it. And so even the, the responsibilities and everything, and even seeing how much better my life got in that period of time, it didn't matter. The thought that I could bring like normal people, right? At the time, I had no inclination that I might be an alcoholic. It was just not a reality for me. And so I, um, I started drinking and I started doing a few things, like when Sadie would go to bed at night. Is that Sadie's my daughter, she's now 12. And if any of you guys come around, um, in, you know, some of the meetings that I go to, she's with me. She loves Alcoholics Anonymous, by the way. <laughs> she loves AA. And she knows what AA is about. She knows it ain't about not drinking. She knows that it's about how her daddy came to reality. Okay. But so, um, that, old, that old, old idea that I'm going to handle it, right? And so I, um, the next step of this process was while I was with her mother, I lost, lost all, I finally like put the nail in the coffin um, with my career. Is that um, I, was, I was dismissed from a job after uh, drinking, drug, drinking drug was still a prevalent part of my life, but a misbehavior in the workplace. Is that I had an affair with a, a coworker, or some, a direct report, somebody worked for me, and someone else in our office had a problem with that. And so I was, I was uh, dismissed for sexual harassment. And you want to talk about a low point. You want to talk about a feeling of desperation and hopelessness when your boss comes, asks you for your keys, your phone, and everything, and tells you why they're firing you, and it's because of something that I thought was going to be a secret forever. I thought for sure, at every bit of me, that nobody would ever find out what we were doing, and that my secret was now revealed. It was a terrifying blow to my ego. What it did do for me was, I, I realized that I was a single parent at that point. So, single parent, didn't fire from a job for cause like that. Not a whole lot of people that are gonna hire me. Um, and never mind the fact that I probably couldn't pass a drug test. Is that, uh, so I um, set out to start my own business. I mean, that's what everybody does. Isn't that how everybody starts a new business? It's because they're unemployable. <laughs> so, fortunately, I had a neighbor that still lived in the house that I hadn't lost yet that offered me a, an office on Forest Drive for free. He said, come on in here. You can use our phones. You can use our office until you get, up, until you get this thing up and going. And then you start paying us rent. 
That's why I went in there. I got a phone from Office Depot, plugged it into the wall. I got internet in my office and off I went. Started my little insurance agency right out of a closet on Forest Drive. I remember people used to say to me, they said, oh, your office is on Forest Drive. That's such a nice area. And I went like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, but I set out in a, as best I could is that I was still kind of trudging along. But the, the nice thing was, is so I'm a single dad and I'm, I'm kind of trudging along. I ran, I, I made a couple of friends in that period of time, but they were friends that, that did things that I did. They drank like I drank. They liked to smoke some outside issues like I like, I like to smoke every once in a while. And the nice thing is, is that they brought me into their homes and into their lives. And actually, you know, I know that uh, it's not a great thing to hang around with the folks that you drank with or that I drank with. These folks saved my life by just giving me somewhere to be for a period of time. It took me a while to figure out, well, not figure out, it took me a while to kind of trudge along is that ultimately what, what helped me hit my bottom, and I'm sorry if, you know, I'm gonna mention there are some outside issues, heavy outside issues, let's just leave it at that the outside issues that ultimately gave me the opportunity to really hit the bottom hard is that losing the job that didn't that didn't sober me up being a single father that didn't sober me up getting kicked out of college that didn't sober me up even though I went back and finished is that all these things didn't sober me up but this this powerful outside issue brought me down within a year of 25 years of drinking, smoking, doing all, all the things that I was doing, is it didn't bring me down fast enough. And I have actually seen where there's a lot of people who don't make it to these rooms until they're in their retirement ages. Is it, so I'm here to tell you, I'm really grateful for the heavier outside issues. If it hadn't been for the heavy outside issues, and for the ego that I thought that I had that told me this said, it won't happen to me. It told me I'm old enough now, I'm smart enough now, I've been around long enough now that I won't be a, an addict also. That, I, that won't be a problem for me. If I didn't have that, I might not have made it here at 40 years old. I might have been still out there <coughs> drinking, smoking, doing my thing. I, I never would have made it in here. Is it? But that, um, that outside issue comes with a with, and when you have a, a sex addiction and lust addiction, and you add these harder outside issues to them, it adds a whole new dimension to the perversion and to the to the difficulties that are caused by it all. And so I, uh, when I got here, and when I when I landed at the Infoa Club over here in downtown Columbia, <coughs> is that I. Uh, was just riddled with shame and guilt for the way I had treated my daughter's mother when I was with her. And for, the, well, let me tell you a little bit more. Something. And, and for the way I behaved. Because that, once again, so as that, that heavy outside issue came into play, and as I'm reaching the end of that heavy outside issue, you know, I started going to see therapists. <coughs> Anybody ever go to therapists? Man, when I first went to a therapist, I, I go to a therapist now, right? But when I first went to the therapist, I paid this guy $175 an hour so I could lie to him. I'm like, nobody was even making me go. 
I was just trying to convince myself that somehow <laughs> is that uh, he's a member of our fellowship and an active member, so I get to see him every once in a while. <laughs> and he just happily took my money because that's his business to do it. And he let me, you know, he he didn't try to figure out if I was lying to him. Because if you go to a therapist and you don't tell them the truth, then save your money. Okay? If you're going to a therapist and you're not telling them what's going on, oh, excuse me. When I was going to a therapist and I wasn't telling them what was going on, it did me zero good. It did nothing for me. And I, I swore up and down that therapist was a quack. <laughs> she wasn't worth shit. And even when I first got here, I, I may have said a few bad things about her. I may have said about how he wasn't really a therapist. Or he, he really doesn't know what he's doing. The reality is those guys can't do anything for us unless we're honest, unless we're willing to tell them. Is it, so as I'm getting to the end of my, uh, my heavy outside issue, and I'm going to therapy, and he's talking to me about recovery centers, I'm, no, I'm not, I don't need that. Is that uh, it's even funnier is when I first went in there to see him, when I felt desperate and hopeless, I said, man, I know you're going to have to drug test me. That's why I want to hire you to do therapy with me, but I want you to also drug test me. You have to agree to that. Okay, he agreed to it. And then about six sessions in when he says, do you still want to do that? And I'm like, nah. <laughs> Is that, uh, that's, that's, the kind of joke, that's the kind of joke that this was. So as I'm getting toward the end of this, this, this heavy outside issue and I'm going to therapy and I'm talking with my girlfriend at the time, who was a girlfriend that I'd had before that has always been kind of my, you know, in case of emergency, break glass woman. And I always had her on the side, cheated with every girlfriend with her, because she knew about all of them. I'm starting to like date her and tell her that like, you know, we should start seriously dating. Well, you know, if we're gonna date this time, then I think we should really be seeing if this is going somewhere. And I'm planting these seeds that we're gonna get married is what I'm doing, right? Now, at the time, I just, I, I had some relief to the fact that she had some stability in her life and that I needed help. I was desperate and hopeless. Is it, you know, they, it's like they say drowning people. You know, I, so I was a lifeguard when I was in high school and they taught me there. They said, you know, a, a drowning person will climb on your head, will climb up you, okay? If you're out there trying to save them from drowning, they will try to grab you and they're not trying to hurt you. They're just so desperate to live that they will push you underwater and drown you trying to climb up. That's what I did. That's what I was doing. I was a drowning man desperately trying to find my way to some air. And so I grabbed a hold of this woman who cared for me genuinely. And I married her. Is it, uh, we had a wedding. I managed to get sober the week before the wedding. I managed to get off the heavy outside issues the week before our wedding so that I was somewhat coherent. But I remember those champagne glasses were going down real, real smooth when we were at our wedding. So we managed to get married. She, you know, after we get married, she moves to Columbia. We move into this house that I bought. Um, and within three months of us getting married, got married in November, my very first sobriety date was February the 14th of 2018. Happy Valentine's Day, babe. I'm going to rehab. That's what that was like. So, my motives, my motives of getting married were all selfish. It 
was all about me. It's all about what I'm going to get out of it. It's all about how, you know, may, maybe she can bring some security into my life. That <coughs> she'll be able to control our finances. She had a good job also. Well, not also, excuse me. She had a good job. I had a good job, but unfortunately, when you're funneling money out of your business, it's not such a good job. It doesn't pay real well, or at least the paychecks never make it home. Is that, um, but even then, the selfishness and self-centered, a, a woman that I told her that I loved her, a woman that I asked her to marry me and spend the rest of my life with me, but the real goal that I had the whole time was just her trying to fix my life right now, because I, I needed some sort of instant fix, is that it'll be so much easier when I have somebody. I won't have so much running around with my little kiddo. I'll have somebody to help me do carpool. I'll have somebody to help me cook dinner. I'll, I, 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 I'll have, I'll have. It was never, ever, never, ever about what I could do for her. At least not then it was. And so, um, we, uh, so, so we get married, so she comes here, and this didn't go the way I planned for it to go. I, I thought she would come here and she would help me fix everything, and she did. But the way that it actually happened was she gave me enough freedom so that I was able to hit the bottom harder and faster than I ever could before. See, I had to clean up every once in a while because I couldn't show up in my kid in school blasted out you know, on some heavy outside issues and such, even though I was starting to get close to it. Is that, but once she came, then I didn't necessarily have to go to the school so I could stay out blasted on the heavy outside issues longer. I didn't have to come home at night, and I didn't. So I have a new wife at home that I'm not coming home to. I'm leaving her there with my kiddo. You know? So now she's a single parent with me out gallivanting the streets. And I did that for right about two months. That January and February, well, yeah. I remember New Year's, New Year's Eve, I didn't drink that New Year's Eve. I'm not gonna drink this New Year's Eve, not gonna do it. And then, uh, the, the biggest, baddest outburst after that, from that the day after New Year's all the way up to mid-February, it was just a, an absolute, I think it was not, not too many better words than a shit show, is that I was out, I had just gotten married, and I'm out in heavy outside issues, and with the people that go with the heavy outside issues, okay? Is that, and, immediately violating my marriage that I had just taken vows on. I mean, like, coming here with the shame and the guilt that I felt. Fortunately, they, I, I tried to do AA in that window a couple of times in, when we were married, when we first got married. And I just I came here, I met a couple of guys that I liked, and what I ultimately wound up doing is I wound up hating them. I mean, came to the club and there's a guy that, is, that has a swagger about him and I, I, I like the way he talked and he sounded, sounded a lot like some of my stories about talking to trees and bushes and stuff like that and I thought oh man I got a lot to do with these guys I like these guys but then something in my head started saying like look at there he go look at he's a know-it-all oh, look, look at how look at how he thinks he knows everything look how this look how that. And I started eating apart you guys Well, so after doing, you know, heavy outside issues and drinking heavily, because the nice thing about heavy outside issues is you can drink a lot of heavy outside issues, is that the, uh, 
without much consequence. But uh, I remember dotting, going to like meetings, and I remember going to one meeting where this old timer got up and they were doing a first step meeting again. Because I, you know, told them what was going on with me to some degree. Got up, he got up and he got on the floor and he said, I, when I was going through DTs, I was laying on the floor. And God, this old guy gets on the floor and he reaches up to this guy and he says, I just said, God, please help me. And the DTs went away. This is some showmanship up here. Yeah. Y'all are the show. <laughs> is it, uh, but I remember when I was like, I think I, I'd been up for like five or six days. Now, once you've been up five or six days, the, uh, the real crazies come in. Start seeing people in the bushes and stuff. Running around my house and with the 38, <laughs> pointing in the bushes and stuff like that. <clears throat> you know, I actually went around my house and I clipped every wire on the outside of my house. Because <laughs> 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 I was running around because I was just... I, I had gotten into this delusional state where I, I just swore that the police were following me and chasing me. I knew it for sure. I knew it for sure so much that I went down to the Columbia Police Department down out, downtown, and I asked them, I asked them to, if they would just please, you know, let me know what was going on. Let's just <laughs> let me let me face the music. Right? Three days in a row. <laughs> On the third day, I went down there. The last time I went down there, I uh, I went to the police officer and I said, "Hey, man, listen, I'm I'm scheduled to go off to a rehab center, and I just want to make sure that if you guys have any warrants for me or anything that I'm aware of, and then, you know, so that I'll be aware of it." And the guy says to me, he goes, "Mr. Sussman, are you going to rehab today?" <laughs> and I said, "I don't know. We think you should go today." <laughs> Unbelievable the, the the depths of this of this thing and, and how much how crazy it gets. Um, so I go off to rehab the rehab center and in the rehab center, I uh, they assigned me to a therapist and the therapist came out and we. But at first when I first got there, I, I just wanted them to put me on some kind of medication because I have anxiety problems. <laughs> and I'm telling everybody that I have anxiety problems. So I really need to get with a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist right here. Y'all got one of those? And so uh, she comes out and she said, I tell her that. She said, hey, we'll teach you how to, not, how, to, how to live without that. It's like, okay, whatever. And she left me alone for a while. But then she, she met with me about a day later. She said, Ryan, you know, there's a lot going on here. Is that, uh, do you think, are you, are you willing to accept that maybe, just maybe, that this program that we're going to work with on here, that it might work for you? So maybe, might be willing to accept that it'll work for you. Maybe my willing, right? <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm gonna be here for 35 days. Because this is a place they don't really let you out of. I mean, they'll let you out, but they'll, they won't give you your stuff and they'll drop you off. Anyways, they make you, and they make you wait six days before they release you. It was, it was a real tight, a tight environment in there. And I said, you know what? Yeah, I'm willing. And so she just looked at me and she said, starts packing up her, Stuff. It starts to walk off, right? I said, whoa, wait, 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 wait. 
I said I was willing. And she just turned around and she looked at me. And she had this voice, like this calm, soft voice. She was a real neutral lady. Like, so there was no attraction that I had to her, right? I wasn't thinking about screwing her like I think about every other woman, right? And she just said, let your word be willing. And she walked away. Willing, okay, all right. Let my word. So I just, in that moment, I decided I was going to let my word be willing. So I walked around that rehab center with willing on my mind. What does willing mean? What does it mean to be willing? What, how do I be willing? Am I willing to do this, willing to do that? Everything was, it was like my name was willing. And I found some willingness. Is that I started seeing some things. There was a, there was a fellow that, that I shared a room with. That he, uh, he and I used to sit up all night in the rehab center and talk about women. Because, if, I mean, like, if I can't talk about alcohol and drugs, I'll talk about women. Talk about some of the things that I've done, some of the things I'm going to do. You know, that, that was the topic of conversation in our, in our, uh, our room at night. And so I watched this guy. He was, a, he was from Memphis, Tennessee, and he was a verified gang member. He was a gangster disciple or something like that, GD. I, it terrified the hell out of me because he'd been shot at and stabbed and all sorts of stuff he told me stories about. I watched this guy come in one night, get on his knees next to his bed, put his elbows on his bed, <clears throat> put his head in his, arm, his hands, and just quietly sat there. I waited for him to get done, and I said, I think you wouldn't mind me telling him a thing. I said, Terrell, what, what do you do there? What are you doing there? He said, I'm praying, Ryan. You don't pray? And I said, well, they've been talking to me, and we've been reading the book about praying, so I've been, I just lay here in my bed and pray, though. He said, no, man. You've got to get on your knees. He said, you've got to humble yourself before whatever it is you believe. This guy, you know, he, he'd just been sober like a week longer than me, but he's telling me this stuff. And he said, Ryan, you know, I humble myself physically by getting down on my knees. Physical humble. I humble myself mentally and spiritually when I pray. And when I tell God that I'm nothing without him. And he laid it out for me. And so what did I do? I, 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 took, I took that mild suggestion. And of course, I waited until nobody was in the room. Right? Because I don't want to do that in front of anybody like he did. But I got on my knees my elbows up on the bed, my hand in my hands, and I said, God, help me. It's real simple. I said, please help me. And I stayed there for a minute, and then I went along my, my, my business. And within a day or two, I had a, what some might call a bright light experience, where I woke up, and the back of my head felt like it was on fire. And I run down to the nurse's station, crying, and I'm you know, spitting, and you know, they couldn't figure out anything was wrong with me. So they gave me some Tylenol and laid me down. But from that moment forward in the rehab, my perspective changed. Is it so I started doing more of that. And then I started helping out by cleaning up some things. We even went around and cleaned all the damn floorboards in the rehab center one day. Just trying to find ways to do some things to get out of my head. Is it now you would think that that experience, getting sober, starting to feel some calm and some ease, that, that would have kept me sober. But it didn't. Came back here, I started working the program, I got a sponsor, and I still stopped working the program. I was going to meetings, still going to meetings every day, but I wasn't praying at night. I wasn't, I wasn't praying in the morning at night. I wasn't doing my inventory. I wasn't working with other alcoholics when sponsoring anybody. 
and I went back out several times in a row. And then I got sober again. I start to feel good again. I'm sponsoring guys. I'm going to meetings. I'm doing a bunch. I'm, I'm doing things, but I'm not. But then I start to carve out praying because I'm too busy. Because I'm too busy at work and I'm too busy working with newcomers that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing at night and in the morning and throughout the day. And that was probably the ugliest, biggest relapse I've ever had. That last relapse, I got into heavier outside issues. Violated my marriage again in sobriety. When I wasn't sobriety, but I've been sober for a while, so now I really knew what the hell I was doing. I knew what was happening, but it didn't matter. I spent the whole week on this extremely heavy outside issue, asking God, praying for him to please, please help me stop. Please. And I couldn't. I had fell for the trap. I had fallen into the trap, and I was stuck, and I was going to die. I knew it. And so at the end of that week, it was from a Friday to a Friday. It was a Friday afternoon, and I was heading home from, from, from work because I had a stash at the house. I swore I wasn't going to do it that morning. And on my way home, like I called my dad, I'm talking to him, giving him some kind of bullshit about why I'm so worked up and everything. And the reality was I was just going there to get, get drunk and high again. And something happened. I've been praying all week. I even came to AA meetings all that week. Picked up a white chip every night in the trap. Stuck in the trap thinking that a white chip would save my life. I finally got honest with someone, which was my father. I said, here's what's really going on. I'm stuck and I'm dying. I was already starting to fantasize ways to kill myself fast. And for some reason, something came over me. I heard one of y'all's voices. It said, no one here ever has to drink again. No one here ever has to take another hit again. That's what I heard in my head. And somehow, I was able to start the program again. But right now, I know I'm not going to fall from that trap again. I'll, I'll go to any length to stay out of the trap. Because the trap for me is death. I, I've, I've been shown that. It's real clear to me. I'm really happy to be here with you guys tonight. I, I appreciate you all listening to me. And, you know, I, if anything, I would tell you that AA keeps me centered. AA keeps me where I'm supposed to be. Gives me opportunities to be of service. And as long as I continue to work in AA and, and build a relationship with God, my understanding is it's either progress or die now. Then I'll be able to stay sober one more day. Thank you all for letting me share.